Hey everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and joining us as always from Southampton, England, our very own professor of Peel, Dr. Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, did you live up to the Professor of Peel moniker uh, these last couple of weeks? Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Um, up I mean, and down. I, <laughs> I, I wasn't. Yeah. Like, as I told you, I chose not to tweet out the video of you just flashing a peel by a foot and a half. <laughs> yeah. Peel. I chose. Yeah. A, I was nice and chose not to share that. I think with it was the a world. foot and a half. I think it was, but it was a flash. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it wasn't a closed <laughs> one either. <laughs> no. No, I mean, I was. Um, I don't know. Did we talk about the coach we brought in? No, we didn't. Oh, so we brought in a coach who's very good, um, Andy Broder from Ottawa. Uh, what are we talking about, by the way, in case this is someone, in case someone is listening to our podcast for the very first time, what are we talking about here? Oh, the English Championships? I assume that's what you're talking about. Yeah. This place I yeah. flash peel. But just, just, <laughs> just so everyone knows, Jonathan recently competed in the English Championships uh, where they won silver. Uh, that's how I will choose to to phrase that. Uh, and so we're talking it's about Jonathan. Feels, but anyway. Jonathan. Jonathan, <laughs> Jonathan played second on Team Wretchless, who won silver at the English Championships uh, behind Team Woolston, who won uh, and will represent England next season. So yeah, so Team Team Wretchless, which you're a part of at the English Championships, brought in a coach. So tell us about him and what he had to say. So I got to say a couple of things. I'm not making excuses and. I am not blaming Andy for anything at the outset. <laughs> so we brought on a coach. Uh, he worked a lot of my delivery, which is fantastic. I've, I've picked up a lot from him. Um, the time, like as also a coach myself, you don't want to be making technical corrections right before a major event. But um, we agreed to try some stuff, and so I was, I was perfectly happy doing that. Um, it basically took the full championships for the peel to kick in. And so actually, actually, in the, I think in the finals, to be honest, I threw most of my peels and runbacks well, but it was a very different way of throwing it than how I've learned to throw it. So uh, there were also some times where it was way off. Like it's just, you're just fight. I'm, you're basically, if you're changing a, a movement, um, you're fighting, well, for me, you're fighting 30 years of muscle memory. So that was kind of what was going on there. But um, interesting, at least in the final, the peel part of the game was working well. My draw weight was still a bit wonky because i was also changing my my timing on my kick and so i was I, definitely at the start of the game i think i threw two right through and i was i'm not i'm more uh rob's way of describing me when he first met me was as a wizard which is a polite way of saying you got a funky slide but you somehow managed to make shots so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and andy brode is a very good technical coach so he was um i mean the easiest way to put it he was the way he put it to me and it kind of kicked in and made sense was there was a lot of wasted motion and energy in my slide. And so when I tightened that up using his corrections, it's all of a sudden I've got way more power than I'm used to. And then something that feels like a pretty um, light draw is actually flying out of the hack. And so it's kind of, how do you adjust for that? So, you know, I, that's not, I don't think that's why we lost the championship. That's how it goes sometimes. Um, but uh, the the PO misses were definitely that. But actually, by the final, I think I I threw 
don't know. I mean, I made three or four pretty good runbacks. I thought I can't. If the game's a blur and I haven't had the courage to go watch the the video, but definitely it. Felt I don't good. recommend it. No, I don't. I don't. I'm not going to go watch it. But um, well, I will, I'll eventually will have to watch it. But I don't think I missed that many peels in the final. I don't think I missed any peels in the final. Did I? Um, I don't think so. I think uh, I think one runner I kind of peeled off, which was like a pro side miss. But I think the other runners actually went pretty well. But you know, I did I should, flash a couple of peels early on in the week. Yes, I should. Uh, I should probably have someone look at my delivery then, because I'm pretty sure that mine is actually similar to yours just because I played with you so much when I first learned the game 10 years ago. So I have a feeling. <laughs> Don't blame me. I'm absolutely <laughs> going to blame you. <laughs> uh, no, I, I recommend it. I think if you, like just as a general principle, uh, <clears throat> I, I think actually one of the things that's weird about curling is we actually seriously undervalue coaching like i think any other sport people who are playing tennis or golf or those sports they'll think nothing of if they're at the recreational or club level you know spending a lot of money to hire a pro and uh you know invest the time in getting better i think it's kind of surprising how much people balk at paying but comparably be a little price, like a small price compared to say a golf pro or a, or a tennis pro to, to kind of come and work on their delivery. And it's kind of one of the more surprising aspects of our curling culture. So I think, I think everyone, right? Like the pros, everyone you're watching on the Skydies or the Briar right now, they all spend a lot of time working with people who are good technical coaches as well as other parts of the game. And there's, there's obviously a, a fair bit of money changing hands there, but it's interesting at the club level, how little people, people going to spend a lot of money on curling brooms and sliders and all that kind of stuff. But they, a lot of people just kind of balk if they're asked to pay say 20, 30 bucks for a kind of an hour coaching session with someone who knows what they're doing. But honestly, if you spent 10, 10 hours a year with a certified coach, that would probably help you make a lot more shots. Not you just personally, but any, any kind of club player. I thought I'm pretty sure I thought that you were talking about me personally, but uh, so yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think like you know, I'm just the you, the generic you, the, the, the royal the, me, the royal we, whatever. Yeah. Oh, uh, so do we want to keep talking about uh, some championships? Because a bunch of them, a bunch of them have finished now. Uh, we still have Canada is just getting underway. The Scotties Tournament of Hearts. And if you want to find out more about that, I highly recommend listening to Game of Stones. They are actually going to release a podcast uh, every night this week, kind of going over the day that was at the Scotties. We're not quite that uh, that intense, um, but we will talk about some championships that just ended. Uh, Jonathan, yours took place there in Dumfries in in Scotland, so we will stay in Scotland, where Eve Muirhead is back at the top. Um, in uh, on in Scottish women's curling, beating Maggie Wilson in the final, uh, we kind of joked last year, um, at least I did, saying that I would be surprised if Eve lost any games at last year's Scottish Championships. Uh, she then proceeded to lose to Sophie Jackson, I think, four times. As Sophie Jackson won that tournament uh, this year. In the very first draw, Eve loses to Sophie Jackson, and then. Um, and then she won out the rest of the way. So she finished six and one in the round robin and then won, uh, won the page one, two 
and then won the final over Maggie Wilson to get back to Worlds. I believe this will be the the first time in a couple of years that Eve has been to Worlds. The last time she was there, I think she finished third. Obviously, a lot has happened since then. Uh, she participated in Olympics since then. She's had hip surgery since then, uh, and she's she's on her way back. So. Very good showing, finishing second at Europeans, uh, wins the Scottish Championship, and is heading back to Worlds. Yeah, I guess not too surprising there, but good to see uh, Team Muirhead back in full form, so that's good. It's a little bit of a surprise to say that the Jackson Jackson rig didn't make the playoffs at all after after winning last year. So Yeah, they finished 4-3 and three in the round robin and did not finish in the top three, so did not go to the playoffs. Yeah, and so Beth Farmer was the other rink that made the playoffs, which is a junior team or just out of juniors. So pretty, I mean, perhaps a good sign there. I think the one good sign is that there's a bit more depth starting to appear in the the women's side in Scotland. So that's that's kind of an interesting development there. I was about to say, I actually think that's a good sign because the the fact that we now have more quality teams on the women's side in Scotland where that wasn't the case, I mean, shoot. I would say even 12, year. 12 months ago, that wasn't the case. So that, yeah. yeah, it's it's good. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Sophie Jackson back in the playoffs next year. Um, on the men's side, Bruce Mowat captures his third consecutive title, this time beating Glenn Muirhead in the final. Uh, the other team to make the playoffs was Ross Patterson. So no surprise there with three teams that made the playoffs on the men's side. Ross White, we kind of talked about him kind of being maybe – Next in Scottish men's curling, he finished four and three in the round robin. I believe his three losses were to Mowat, Patterson, and Muirhead. Uh, so Mowat uh, actually lost the page one two game to Muirhead, and then had to come through and beat Patterson, and then win the rematch against Muirhead to win. But he is heading back to Worlds. Yeah, so that's good. I mean, I. Uh, uh, they're they're the strongest team if you go by the order of merit ranking in the the last few years. But um, the Scottish Championship on the men's side is very deep. So honestly, any of the top four teams could have won, and I wouldn't have been surprised at all. But it's uh, good for Moet to defend the title there. All right. Uh, keeping it rolling, we go to Switzerland. And going into this tournament in our last episode, Jonathan, we kind of talked about the, 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 the talking points there being you had two very well-established teams with very good players in Team De Cruz and Team Tiranzoni, who both won last year in Switzerland, have both put up uh, very good results, both at Europeans and at uh, the world's level. Uh, but you had these two younger Younger teams and Team Stern on the women's side and Team Schwaller on the men's side, who seemed uh, seemed like they might be ready to, to to you know to to put their hat in the ring as far as who will be Switzerland's representative uh, when the Olympics come around in two years. And sure enough, both of those teams won. Uh, team Stern not only did they win it, they went undefeated, which means they beat Team Tiranzoni three times in this tournament. Uh, and it was kind of interesting. This year they added a guaranteed final under last year's um, last year's format. There would not have been a final. Team Stern would have just been the Swiss women's champion because they went through the round robin undefeated and then went through the mini kind of champions pool that they do with the top four teams playing each other again. Uh, went through that undefeated. Uh, but did have to play in a one-game winner-take-all final and did win again. So 
heck of a performance by Team Stern. They are heading to their first Worlds. Same with Yannick Schwaller, who we saw represent Switzerland at this year's Europeans. He defeats Peter Cruz's team in the final. So youth is served in Switzerland. Yeah, no, it's good to see. It's a bit, I'd say the bigger surprise on the women's side because Tiranzoni's been, you know, well, the world champs, first of all. So uh, su surprising they're not able to get back to the world championship this year. Yeah. Um, I think Stern has kind of been waiting for them perhaps a bit. So it's, it's good to see them uh, kind of win. But the, the fact they went undefeated mm -hmm. uh, and beat a Tiranzoni three straight times is uh, surprising, I would say. Yeah, uh, I think, I think that... I, I, the, the gap between Schwaller and De Cruz is not as large in my mind. So uh, a little bit of a less, less surprising there. Yeah, the, the Stern part is surprising, not necessarily because they won, because they're you know they're competing in slams now. They're beating very high quality teams, but for them to beat the defending world champions three times in the Swiss uh, Swiss Championships, uh, that part to me was surprising. But yeah. uh, congratulations to them; those two teams are heading to Worlds. Uh, next, we'll go to Japan, where on the women's side, uh, Satsuki Fujisawa is back in the Worlds. She beats Team Nakajima in the final. This will be Team Fujisawa's first trip to Worlds since 2016, where she finished second. These these were the two teams that finished 1-2 in the round robin. They, I believe, yeah, Nakajima won, and they played each other three times, basically in the span of three days. They played each other in the last... Um, the last draw of the round robin, which Nakajima won. Both teams were undefeated going into that game. So by virtue of that win, Nakajima had hammer and choice of stones in the page one, two game team. Fujisawa won that page one, two game, and then won again in the rematch. So they are heading to worlds. Uh, the only surprise there um, wasn't necessarily that Tori Kawana's team finished fourth in the round robin, but they did lose to one of the teams that that wasn't among that big four of Fujisawa, Nakajima, Yoshimura, and Kawana. Uh, she lost to another team in in addition to those other three. I believe it was the team from the from the Aomori block. Um, but in, that was that was really the only surprising thing there in that tournament. On the men's side. Yuta Matsumura will not be heading to Worlds, but he does defend his Japanese men's title going undefeated, meaning he beat Team Morizumi three times, uh, including in the final. Good to see Team Morizumi back out there. Um, I imagine they'll be neck and neck with Yuta next year. As this was this was a new team. They're kind of in that forming stage that that we talk about. So that'll be interesting next year. Uh, a couple of notes on this. Um, one is, so next year, if these two teams win again, uh, the way they've kind of set it up. So if Fujisawa repeats next year or Yuta repeats, wins his third straight next year, those are your Japanese Olympic teams. By virtue of winning this year, if they win again next year, there's not going to be a, uh, in a, an Olympics try in Olympic trials in Japan. Um, if either of those, that's two an teams, interesting rule. Yeah, yeah it is. But, it's really interesting. Okay, since you know everything about Japanese curling, I I, I do not, <laughs> but I you have a freakish knowledge of Japanese curling. Um, it's all Google, Dan. How do they qualify for the Asia Pacific? So did did um, do both these teams uh, get to go to the Asia Pacific Championships as well? 
Yes. So these were these are the representatives for next year's PACCs. Yes. Oh, okay. Yep. So, so, team, so yeah. still something to win there. It's not just simply to win the Japanese title. You still got to advance yeah. to international competition. Yeah. So even though team, even though Japan did not qualify for the men's this year, and Team Matsumura won't be going to Worlds, they are Team Japan at the PACCs in the fall. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the if if a different team wins on either the on the women's side or a different team wins on the men's side, then there will be a very complicated uh, Olympic trials that involves world curling tour points as far as who uh, qualifies for it. Uh, we won't worry about that unless uh, that actually happens. But just keep in mind, if Fujisawa wins next year or Yuta wins next year, their team Japan uh, for, for Beijing. Uh, the other interesting thing, uh, the last few years, this has been held uh, on curling club ice, including this year uh, at Kurosawa. Next year, it's going to be on arena ice, not just on arena ice, but they're moving this to the Tokyo area. So, wow. Yeah. Which is good because Tokyo does not have, I I don't believe Tokyo has dedicated curling ice yet. There's just a few, there's a few, um, arena, arena clubs that exist in Tokyo, but for the most part, I think they have to go to Karazawa, uh, if they want to play on, on dedicated ice. I know team, team episode of rocks across the pond, right? (laughs) When you interviewed JD Lind. That's right. Um, so yeah, so this this tournament is going to the Tokyo area at a ice arena in Yokohama that's southwest of um, of I guess what you would consider downtown Tokyo. And the Yokohama is still a very large population center, uh, and the area where this uh, arena tournament is going to take, or the where the the area where this arena that the tournament's going to take place in next year, uh, it's right in the area with the big national uh, stadium that they have that hosted both the. 2002 World Cup final and the 2019 Rugby World Cup final. So it's a big it's a big area that people are used to going to to watch big time sporting events. So I think this is a this is a great move for Japan and I think will help uh, help continue to grow the sport there. Um, moving on to Russia, your Russia women's world's representative is going to be team Kovaleva again. Uh, they beat Anna Sidorova in, at uh, Team Kovaleva beat Anna Sidorova four games to one in their best of seven. Uh, so every year before Worlds and before Europeans, uh, the Russian Federation has Team Koval- has had Team Kovaleva and Team Sidorova play a best of seven, uh, I think for like the last three years now. And every time, at least since we've been doing this podcast, Kovaleva has won. <laughs> Yeah, the gap is pretty big, I'd say now. Like, it's yeah. kind of interesting that Sidorova was um, just a few years ago. Uh, she lost the world finals to Homan, and since then, they and, you know was playing, you know, making the occasional slam, posting good results at Euros. Seems to really have kind of slipped back a bit, and Kovalev has really become the the dominant Russian team, and is the one posting the great results internationally too. Yeah, there's been some team changes there, and then I don't know what happened, but by the end of this best of seven, um, team Sidorova was having to play three handed. Uh, so I'd, she had she was short on a draw that would have tied the series two two. Uh, so she was short on the draw with the last rock of the game that allowed Kovaleva to go up three games to one, and then in the next game. 
Sidorova comes out playing with just three, and in the very first in, Kovaleva puts up puts up a three spot, and that was pretty much it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, not I guess not a big surprise anymore. I'd say that there's clear separation there between the first and second Russian team on the women's side. There is, but I'd be interesting. It, I'd be interested to see what would happen if Sidorova has eight more inches on that last draw and ties the series at two. Cause then it's game on. Cause that's such a huge swing between having the series be tied and having to win three in a row. Moving on to Sweden. Uh, no surprise here. Nicholas Adin and Anna Hasselborg uh, win and will be team Sweden at worlds. The only surprise here, uh, Anna Hasselberg did not go undefeated. Uh, in fact, she didn't win in the, the round robin. She actually had to go into the semifinal where she played Isabella Rona and won there and then did avenge her loss from the round robin against Team Sundberg to capture the Swedish championship. Uh, on the men's side, the one thing that was interesting, uh, the team you talked about, the junior team led by Daniel Magnuson that you were very high on, uh, they lost their first two games and had to drop down to the sea. Uh, and then managed to work their way all the way from the C bracket to the final to face a Dean, which was kind of kind of incredible. Uh, in fact, uh, that second game, that second loss where they dropped down to the C, they lost on a ridiculous wick triple uh, on the last shot of the game um, that really had no business being made. Uh, so it was good to see them rebound and win all the way back uh, into the final where they, uh, you know, not re- they're not quite ready to uh, to knock off Nicholas Adin there in Sweden. Yeah, not yet, but they're you know I it's they're a team to watch is what I would say mm. right. They're they're still a junior team, but they play a very high level. Not quite sure they well they had a, their first game was a loss to Canada at the World Juniors. I haven't seen how they did today, but um, they'll definitely be a medal round threat at the World Juniors and. Uh, a, I'm not quite sure how many years they have left in junior eligibility, but they're they're certainly one of the up and coming teams for to watch uh, on the European side for sure. And then uh, we'll close out with Latvia. Neither of these teams are heading to Worlds, but we will see them at Europeans next year. Uh, on the women's side, uh, Team Iveta Stasha Sarsina uh, wins uh, once again. They will be Team Latvia. However, uh, I don't know why. This was the case because I don't speak Latvian, and I'm sure they talked about it on the broadcast, but one of my many flaws is I don't speak Latvian. Uh, Iveta did not play, uh, and Santa Blumberga uh, skipped the game and threw last rocks as this team uh, won the women's championship, but I have not heard why Iveta wasn't playing. Well, when I was at the rink in Riga, Iveta was there coaching juniors, and she was very pregnant, like probably eight months pregnant, which would mean she is now either a mother or um, close to being a mother. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. That's good. All right. So, yeah, all right. Rocks across the pond. Uh, Leaders in Latvian curling uh, gossip, I guess. So, yeah. Well, that, that that explains that. So, Iveta was out on maternity leave. So, I'm sure we'll see her uh, next year at Europeans. That's awesome. Um, yeah, uh, on the men's side, Team Smilga wins. I believe they were Team Latvia a couple years ago. They're, they've they've been around. They're a veteran team. Um, 
But yeah, they they won. Uh, Martin Strucksons, who I believe you played or you saw uh, there at that tournament that you went to in Riga, uh, they won. They were they were the better team uh, coming out of the round robin, and then they lost the semifinal and then lost the the bronze medal game. Uh, so no Martin Strucksons at next year's Europeans. It will be Team Smilga. Yep. Well, that's. Yeah, I mean, they're, I think it's a pretty close field there. So, uh, again, not a huge surprise. Turkson's was probably the favorite going in, but Smilga's won in the past. So, And we'll close out our trip around the curling globe uh, here in my neck of the woods uh, in the good old U.S. of A., where your two champions were John Schuster on the men's side. He went undefeated through the tournament. And Team Roth skipped by Tabitha Peterson. Uh, speaking of maternity leave, uh, Nina Roth, uh, she and her husband just welcomed uh, their child, and they were able to see Tab go ahead and, and win this tournament for Team Roth and head to the Worlds. Uh, on the men's side, the men's final was incredible uh, between Team Schuster and Team Ruinen. Um, I mean, Team Ruinen, they, they really played their rear ends off uh, in that final. And um, Schuster made a just perfect corner freeze um, to force a run back attempt from, from Rich and where, so, so team Ruinen had, had a stone back button. If Schuster wasn't perfect on his freeze, uh, Ruinen had rocks both uh, that he could come in, that he could run an in off on the side or run one back to try and win the game. Uh, and the only way to make the run back difficult was to freeze this just perfectly on the corner. And Schuster did. Uh, it forced a very difficult run back attempt that um, that Richie wasn't able to make. So Schuster wins another U.S. title and heads back to Worlds. Uh, the Peterson game, Jamie Sinclair played great all week, but picked picked uh picked a very bad game to to not be at her best she had a couple of rocks that she even said after the game that she'd like to have back uh so team but team peterson was able to take advantage kudos to them uh and they are your u.s champion on the women's side yeah and that i think well uh yeah on the women's side that definitely played out the form for this year right that um Team Peterson's been the stronger team on tour, so yeah. you know, perhaps so so kind of a new champion, but um, not super surprising. No, the the only the only way you'd consider them new is that Nina's not there, and there's a different skip. Um, team Sinclair, this is this is kind of a forming year for them. It is a new team with Corey Christensen uh, playing third. I expect them to be back to to their normal level next year. Um, and it'll be it'll be cool to have to have Nina back next year year ne- uh, next year as well uh, as that rivalry continues. Um, but yeah, it was a good tournament. Uh, really, the only the only big surprise to me was uh, Corey Dropkin not making the playoffs uh, on the men's side. That was the only big surprise I think uh, in the whole tournament. Yeah, probably a, a little bit of an underperformance for them for sure, uh, especially because they seem so hot going in, having you know won a slam, quali- well tier two slam, qualified another one. Um, so they'd had a very good tour season, but uh, still not quite uh, ready to dethrone, dethrone Schuster uh, when it comes to U.S. national championships. 
All right, so Schuster runs through this tournament undefeated. And Jonathan, if you remember in our preview, I kind of said, you know, something looked off about this team, um, all this. Uh, yeah, none, none of that was there this week. Uh, they they rolled through this tournament with the exception of, of that final. Um, there weren't, you know, no communications issues, no body language issues. They kind of just dominated uh, basically everything that I talked about um, talked about, uh, during the preview. Uh, yeah, that wasn't there this week. Um, so they'll move on to worlds. Uh, they've said before that, uh, one of their goals is to win a worlds. Another one of their goals is to, uh, win a grand slam. Uh, another thing I said, uh, during the preview was I said that that team, that John Schuster probably wants to be the first American to win a grand slam. Uh, I'm completely wrong. Uh, and I was called out on it. Um, very rightly. So, uh, Jamie Sinclair has already won a grand slam. So an American's already won one. The best John Schuster can do is be the first men's team to win a grand slam. I am still very guilty of sometimes being very male centric. Uh, when that's a fair point when saying that, um, Dropkin, I mean, it was a tier two, but he he might have a, a yeah. thing to say there too. Right? Well, I did I did say that he would be the first one to win a tier one slam, but I completely yeah. did not. I completely skipped over the whole. An American has already won a tier tier one uh, grand slam thing, so uh, yeah. Team Schuster can can attempt to be the first men's team to win a to win a tier one slam. Yeah, uh, but I was, yeah, so. I was very rightly called out on that. Um, and the only way that I'm going to get better uh, is by people continuing to call me out on that stuff. Yeah, that's a fair point. We always welcome feedback. Yep. yep. And yeah. it's not uh, it's not being woke. It's not being politically correct. It's being accurate. Yeah, for sure. All right. So we're, we're starting to see the world's field kind of fill out do you have anyone that kind of stands out to you that that you're wanting to watch uh you know we don't have the canadian representative just yet but of the other winners that we've seen is there anyone that you kind of are interested to see at worlds coming up well it's gonna be a slightly less veteran field right with um the cruise not on the men's side with the cruise not going to be not being there Japan not having made the world championships this year. Uh, so obviously, Adin's, you know, probably the favorite going in just as a defending champ and um, pretty clear path until at least we know who Team Canada is. But if I'm Schuster and Muet, this is probably, you know, their best shot, I'd say, if I'm looking at the field right now. They're, they both have that veteran experience now. So Worlds is in a new experience for them. They've both been you know, sniffing around uh, the finals for the last few years. So uh, I would I would expect that one of those two teams makes the final this year. I don't know it or, or Schuster. That's going to be my uh, golden limb prediction on the men's side. Women's side, I think the big news is that Eve is back. That last year, um, between the hip surgery, team realignment changes, team kind of alignment changes and all that. She, she's definitely had a, a kind of subpar performance year for herself, but she's definitely found uh, her stride this year. So I'd expect to kind of see a solid showing from Scotland this year. Uh, obviously, Hasselberg is going to be the favorite uh, going into the women's side. Um, and with Tiranzoni out, uh, you know, Sterna doesn't quite have the same level of international experience. And I think that's a slightly different kettle of fish than the cash, cash spiel kind of circuit. So 
be curious to see how they handle it. But and so you know, I I would say there's certainly going to be a playoff threat, but um, perhaps not a medal, a podium, a medal or podium threat. So uh, perhaps a shot for Muirhead this year. Uh, Hasselberg's definitely a favorite. Um, I think Fujisawa going back is interesting because they they put on a great show mm-hmm. the last time they were there and kind of became became fan favorites in 2016. Uh, so they're going to be definitely interesting to watch. So the women's the women's field I think as always is a lot more equal and kind of more likely to throw up uh, surprises. The men's field often just feels like there's a pecking order going in and it often plays out pretty close to that pecking order. And the the other thing to watch. This is the first year that you earn points toward the Olympics and the top seven point gaining teams this year and next year will get automatic berths to the Olympics. Uh, the rest will have to go to the Olympic qualifying events. So you want to be, you want to make playoffs this year. Being in the top six puts you in a pretty good spot going into next year. You don't want to come out here and finish ninth and be behind the eight ball and have to not only qualify for playoffs, but then win a couple games in next year's worlds just to get one of those seven auto bids to the Olympics. Yeah. I I would say you almost have to have to make the final four. That puts you in a really good spot. That that puts you in a comfortable spot. I think yeah. if you're five or six, you're you're already in the bubble spot for yeah. those uh, bottom teams. If you don't make playoffs the next year, your country's going to the Olympic qualification event for sure. Yeah. So that'll be interesting. So th- th- there'll be a lot of th- there's. It's not just about who wins the world championship. In fact, for most of these national bodies, it's more important how many Olympic points they pick up because that's where the money is and that's where the real uh, real pressure is. So. Just making the playoffs, like you said, is going to be key this year. And I and I say this a lot, but one thing that you really have to watch because it's going to be – it's very often going to be the tiebreaker. Like if you don't make playoffs, the difference between finishing – if there's a you know if there's a log jam there around that sixth spot, the difference between being in seventh and being in tenth going into next year's Worlds – is going to be draw shot challenge. Yeah, draw shot challenge is going to matter, and unfortunately for the Japanese men, um, they're not in the worlds this year. Yep. So they're that's a country that's actually, you know, normally on the bubble to make the Olympics. So they're they're really behind the eight ball already because they're going to get no points this mm-hmm. year. So that's uh, that's kind of an interesting angle too. So. Jonathan, staying in the U.S. for a bit, we do have some big news in USA Curling in that uh, USA Curling has a new CEO. Uh, His name is Jeff Plush. He is the former commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League. Uh, He has also been managing director of the Colorado Rapids in Major League Soccer. He has also served as a director of corporate development for the company that is now IMG. So he has a he has a primarily soccer background, but he has been involved in the Olympic movement when he was with IMG. He represented a lot of Olympic athletes, including Michael Johnson, Peekaboo Street, Johnny Mosley, Dan O'Brien. Um, you know, kind of kind of an off the off the beaten path kind of a hire. Um, I guess so Jonathan, you used to be on the board at the USCA, is that right? 
Yeah, I was okay. on the executive actually. So I was on I was the secretary for two years and on the board for three years. Okay. So explain to me and anyone else who might be listening, what is the CEO's role uh, for USA Curling? Uh, Okay, so the CEO was actually, role was created while I was on the board. Um, So I got to think what I can say and what I can't say. (laughs) Um, So I mean, I think what's on the public record is after 2010, the USA kind of finished double last in the Olympics and the United States Olympic committee uh, had spent a lot of money in the previous quadrennial. And as, as they do with any of their sports at the end, they do a review and uh, they put USA curling kind of on notice that, you know, Hey, basically we've given a lot of money and you haven't provided the results we want. And we want not just, kind of a talk about how you're going to change the high performance program or the athlete performance. We actually want to look at how the organization is run um, from top to bottom. And part of what U.S. Olympic Committee wanted was a very clear um, lines of authority. And so one of their points was that the USA Curling Board had been essentially set up as a kind of a volunteer grassroots organization since its founding in the 50s. And really, to perform at a high level, you've got to run a lot more like a corporate board, which means the board sets the strategy and kind of does the larger governance issues. But you basically hire a CEO and say, it's your job to manage the organization day to day. And then the only person the board should be directing their talks to is the CEO. And if the CEO underperforms, you fire the CEO rather than worrying about what everyone else is doing lower down in the organization. So that's that's kind of how modern corporate uh, strategy works. So out of those conversations, there was a, a massive bylaws reform. So people who are kind of very into USA curling probably remember the politics of that all from kind of eight, nine years ago. Uh, and out of that change, the CEO role was created. So Rick Patsky had been the president and then he was turned into this new CEO. And part of the deal with that is he was kind of assured that he'd get less daily micromanaging from the board members, so to speak. Uh, so he's given a lot more freedom, but he also made he had a lot more accountability. Uh, and uh, so he essentially the buck stops at the CEO's uh, table. So he's then in charge of hiring the high performance director. He's in charge of kind of hiring the person in charge of growth and development for the clubs, hiring the person in charge of the media strategy, running the organization, managing the daily budget, essentially running the corporation. Uh, the board sets the larger targets and strategies as these are the things we want you to accomplish. Here's how we want Here's how we're going to help you get the resources. But ultimately, the CEO has got to be the person who's accountable for how the organization performs. I'm on the fence on this. Is it good to have someone who doesn't have a curling background come in, come into this role? Um, I think it's going to be good to have someone with a different perspective. Uh, different different perspective on how the business of sports works in this role i think that's going to be good but you do have someone who it's you know there's going to be a learning curve for him um as far as the politics of curling uh is is involved is it good to have someone who who's just comes from completely outside of the world the world of curling come in at the ceo level so I, I think so. I also know, having been on the board, that probably the majority of USA Curling members would think no. <laughs> but um, 
I, I, I think of that a lot from kind of my, my just my professional life too, just in terms of seeing how organizations run. That actually being a leader, being a manager, is a very different skill set from what may make you succeed um, as a professional in that field. Um, so I, it just my, you know my profession, being a university professor, you know professors can be brilliant teachers, great lecturers, great researchers, but they could be very bad at um, you know personal management and it's a different skill set and so sometimes universities thrive when they bring in someone for kind of a dean role or higher up who has non-academic background even if that kind of upsets the academics uh you know talking to friends who work in the field of law it's something quite similar that lawyers might be very good at the law part of the job but often they a lot of kind of large firms these days hire someone with a kind of management background to actually run the firm because that draws on a different skill set so I think that the same principle applies here, that someone who has experience as a director, senior director, an executive for different sports organizations um, will come in with the skill set that you need to run an organization, but also will have fresh eyes. Um, the things that I find really interesting, uh, kind of looking at the CV, is the, the connection with IMG, which is kind of one of the largest um, sports agencies in the world. So through that, a very good chance that USA Curling could negotiate some some good sponsorship deals. That that's not um, that's one of the areas where I think USA Curling historically struggled, and I think the board knows that. It was one of the things we talked about all the time when I was on the board. But I think coming out of the the gold medal win in 2018 and kind of the larger growth and the larger profile for curling, I think there's a real chance here to get some kind of interesting marketing angles here. Um, the fact that he has experience in constructing large stadiums and kind of, that, and kind of understanding how those projects work and how to fundraise for that, that's, I think, very important because, to be honest, if after marketing and kind of the sponsorship angle, the other big weakness in USA Curling at the moment is the lack of high-quality facilities all across the country. There certainly are a few, especially in the Twin Cities areas, that have kind of come on board and we're starting to see a lot more dedicated ice but a lot of that dedicated ice is you know it's it's refurbished warehouses it's kind of clubs trying to take the step from arena to having their own facility which is a huge step but often you talk to the clubs they have to make a lot of compromises in building those facilities um when we're talking high performance and growth of the game i think that long term you need the kinds of facilities that really attract large membership bases and are also set up for kind of high performance training, which uh, to be quite frank, a lot of the, the kind of facility stock in North America really isn't set up for that. So that's kind of another area where hopefully you can help out. I think I've kind of talked about this story before and I've, I've actually, I've written about it, not about curling, but in terms of how it, of how it relates to Virginia Tech football, um, as far as bringing in someone like, Jeff Plush to be CEO. So I used to work for a nonprofit. And when I came in, you know, there were there were two full-time employees and then we served a board of directors. And the board of directors for this this charity, um, they were all friends. They had all been on the board basically from the beginning. Um, this charity was about 10 years old when I got there, but we really didn't have any kind of professional fundraising. So they wanted, they wanted to take the step up. They didn't want to be um, just kind of a smaller charity. They wanted to really grow and be national. So we brought in this development person 
who had a very extensive background in fundraising and they started going through, you know, basically their job was to, to write grants, uh, write, write uh, grant requests. So they start going through this and they start running into a, a lot of, a lot of difficulty. One of the difficulties they ran into was we were viewed by the larger foundations that give money to charities as, as a mom and pop organization, because we didn't want to change the way we had our board set up. And so now we were in this awkward phase of, do we want to become a professional board and to, to qualify for all these great big money grants, but do we want to deal with the, do we want to deal with all the the headaches that come with being a professional board? You know, they were going to have to bring in people from outside. There was going to, it was going to have to be set up to where, you know, you eventually cycle off the board and you're no longer on this, this board that they've all been a part of for 10 years. Um, but we did, we had people from the outside saying, look, you're a mom and pop organization and you have to decide, do you want to continue being a mom and pop organization and limit yourself? And you're going to have to just accept the fact that that limits you if you want to run your organization the way that you are now. Um, and they, they kind of had to, to deal with that. Um, the fact that they didn't, they, they both wanted to be a national organization that brought in a lot of money to help people nationwide instead of just kind of regionally. Um, but they didn't want to change. They, they didn't want to make the necessary changes that had to be made. And to me, that kind of, it kind of reminds me of the way curling as a whole is right now. We're in this very awkward adolescent phase where we're going from being the mom and pop sport with the corn brooms to now being this Olympic sport where there's Olympic money coming into these organizations, coming into these national governing bodies. Um, and not every... I don't think every national governing body was kind of ready for, um, for what came with all that. And I think curling is one of them that's still kind of figuring itself out, trying to still trying to find the balance between being what the sport was before the Olympics and being this high, higher profile sport um, that embraces everything that comes with, with having Olympic success. Yeah, and it, w one of the things I remember when we were the, in Oklahoma, uh, do you remember that kind of membership? I can't remember what it was called, but the event where we went down to Dallas and uh, USA Curling put on like a coaching clinic, um, kind of a, a clinic to help people improve their game, and then also a business development clinic. Did you did you go down to that one? Or I not? did. I did not get to go to that one. Okay, so but a bunch of us did, and I remember a couple of our members had previously—they well, still were—but they were active rowers, and so they were actually also just as plugged into USA Rowing, <laughs> and kind of just the first taste of USA Curling as an organization. I remember, one of them said to me, "This is exactly the argument we had in USA Rowing ten years ago." <laughs> <laughs> and, it was, and what's funny, I think, and if you go to the United States Olympic Committee, like. They knew every single point of pushback that curling would come up with. And they said, oh, we're <laughs> grassroots. We're different. We're special. And they're like, you know what? You're no different than any of the other 20 amateur sports that we've had to deal with in the last 10 years. And um, that's just kind of part of what's happened with sport, right? If you just look at the history of sports over the last 100 years, it's gone from essentially being amateur as more and more money's poured in across all the sports. It's become far more professionalized. And um, part of it is that, right? But I, I also think there's a certain section that's kind of does complain a lot, uh, you know, whether at the club level or at the national level, 
But I, I think having kind of run a club and kind of served on the board, there's also this 80% silent majority who actually just want to curl and have the, the experience kind of well run, um, see everything kind of be well organized. And to have those kinds of things, it doesn't work if you're relying on volunteer labor. That um, when you're relying on volunteer labor, it, it just becomes amateurism and you're just hoping that you happen to have the right people with the right talents who also have the drive and commitment to to contribute to clubs. And that's, that's, you know, that's, that's very important. A lot of clubs, if they get the culture right, can do a lot of great things doing that. But for the kind of high level stuff, there's no way you can compete in 2020 uh, for Olympic medals if you don't have a fully funded high performance program with a high performance director and six to seven paid coaches on the staff. And that's just the reality of it. With a facility that you have access to 12 months of the year with state-of-the-art equipment, that's what all the metal threats for 2022 have. And USA Curling, to be honest, is still a little step behind, say, Scotland, Sweden, China, Canada, when it comes to those kinds of things. All right. So that will be one of Jeff Plush's tasks is to to get to that level. So I was I was interested in the guy because he obviously is coming from not a curling background and Friday before uh Nationals they announced that Jeff Plush will be CEO uh of USA Curling and I wasn't familiar with him so I reached out to a bunch of people um kind of basically started scouring my LinkedIn, uh, my LinkedIn connection, seeing if anyone might know him. Uh, also just cold reached out to a bunch of people who might be involved, who have been involved, uh, with him in the past just to get a read on, on who he is. I did hear back. I heard back from about half the people that I reached out to, um, five guys, uh, some of which I know, uh, some of whom I just, just were nice enough to, to respond to me. Uh, they were all men. Um, the people who did get back to me, the NWSL is not in season. So it's a little tougher to get a hold of people, uh, with that league. So just going through, uh, Jeff Plush's background, he was commissioner of the NWSL from January, 2015 to April of 2017. Um, his major accomplishments when he was there, he negotiated the league's TV deal, which at the time was with, uh, with a and E, which included a game of the week on lifetime. Um, he also helped bring in a very highly successful franchise, uh, in Orlando when he left, uh, he did an interview with four, four, two. And one of the quotes he gave just about him leaving, um, it kind of also, relates to curling. So something he said three years ago when he was leaving soccer, he said, the priority continues to be building revenue streams and building the brand. At the end of the day, we can talk about a number of things, but building relationships is the recipe to having long-term success. I think that, uh, I think that applies pretty well uh, <laughs> to, to his, uh, his job now as CEO of USA Curling. Um, yeah. A couple of the people that uh, got back to me one is a friend of mine uh, named Chris Metz. He used to be VP of communications for the 
for Portland Timbers FC and Portland Thorns FC. I know him from when he was with the when when the Portland Beavers baseball team was also in the mix of things he had to be VP of VP of communications for. Um, he said, uh, "I've met Jeff a few times over the years, but didn't really work directly with him on much." Um, he did say the folks at the NWSL should be commended for their work in growing the league far outlasting their predecessors. I'm bullish on the future of that league. Um, the league front office was pretty humble in size, so Jeff would have worn many hats for sure. Basically said he always seemed like a good guy. Everyone who got back to me, the five uh, the five men who who got back to me did all say that he always seemed like, like a great person. They really enjoyed working with him. So that was really good to hear because that was universal with everyone who did get back to me. Uh, the other um, person who kind of um, was on the NWSL side of things that that uh, that I did get a hold of was a guy named Jeff Kassoff. He covers uh, NWSL for many places, including a website called Equalizer Soccer. He said, uh, I'd say the business side is definitely his strong suit. Uh, talking about the NWSL, he said that U.S. soccer has a very, very big influence on the NWSL, um, at least in the past, to where the powers of the NWSL commissioner probably isn't exactly what we think of when we think of a commissioner. Uh, and said that uh, Jeff Plush probably ran into a lot of red tape that put him between U.S. soccer and the owners of the NWSL franchises, um, but that uh, you know that USA Soccer, because of their power, sometimes it might have prevented some things from getting done in the NWSL. But he said that should not be indicative of uh, Jeff's capabilities. Yeah, but that, that's also interesting. I think that he has experience working in an organization that also has a more powerful organization above it, right? So yes. for USA Curling, um, U United States Olympic Committee is very powerful. It's the largest funder of the organization. And, you know, the golden rule is he who has the gold gets to make the rules. So um, he's having that skill where he's perhaps used to having another organization um, exert influence and perhaps... Uh, you know, tell you to do things that perhaps you're not always comfortable doing and kind of having to negotiate those kinds of relationships is uh, certainly an important skill to have, I'd say. So before he went to the NWSL, Jeff Plush was managing director of the Colorado Rapids. When he was at the Colorado Rapids, like you kind of mentioned, Jonathan, he was involved in uh, the building of Dick's Sporting Goods Park, which is their soccer specific stadium just outside of uh, downtown Denver in suburban Denver. The team also won MLS cup in 2010 while he was managing director of the Rapids and they were able to kind of take advantage of, of that success. And when one of the big uh, new sponsorships that he brought in um, the year after they won MLS cup was Porsche. I mean, that's a big name brand to bring into United States soccer, um, particularly for, uh, for just one MLS team, not necessarily a sponsor of USA soccer in general, but of just one MLS team, uh, Porsche is a pretty big name brand to bring in. Yeah. And that's, I think that's probably going back to the IMG connections is my hunch. So, and that's, to me, that's probably the most significant part of this hire is that 
Um, when I was on the board, there were lots of great ideas, but the two things we kept butting our heads up against was the difficulty getting curling on TV. And it certainly got a more prominent place now than it did a decade ago, but that's still, I think, a challenge. And then the, the lack of ability to get a major sponsor that can give kind of a serious cash injection that then can then enable you know, USA Curling to do a whole bunch of uh, things. They had. There's like a lot of great ideas around that table, but um, unfortunately the budget will only go so far. And so uh, having someone who can certainly build up the business side of things, uh, I think will be huge. Uh, one of the people who got back to me was a guy named John Meyer, who covered the Colorado Rapids for the Denver Post. Uh, the Rapids did not have a complete, you know, Colorado Rapids beat writer, uh, while, um, while Jeff Plush was with the Rapids, but one of the guys who covered them off and on was John Meyer. He said, uh, and it's actually kind of one of the more important quotes to me. He said, I thought he did a great job with the Rapids and he was great to work with. He's really smart and he never exhibited the arrogance or air of superiority that some CEOs have. I think that in terms of connecting with curlers and the curling community uh, is probably going to be the most important thing there. Yeah. And I, I think that's my, the, the one thing I'd say is that not that curling's unique, but because of the club structure in curling and because the curling clubs were basically everything happens. And the fact that USA curling still at its core is a dues paying membered member supported organization where every where every club gets the vote uh, in terms of the board elections given those factors uh, his biggest challenge is going to be keeping the clubs and the grassroots on side that when you get the high performance and the grassroots kind of rowing together uh great things are possible but if it if it often is some it often happened when i was on the board but often i think happens in curling everywhere where the grassroots and the high performance see themselves kind of butting heads over things like resources over where the, where an organization's priorities are um that can kind of cause a lot of problems so i think his real challenge is going to be to keep um those two things on side so he's going to have to not just be a good businessman and not just be a good fundraiser for the organization or someone who can go and get sponsorship money but his real kind of political skill is going to be having to kind of get buy-in and maintain support from uh, the grassroots clubs in the U.S. When Jeff Plush was at IMG, uh, we kind of mentioned what his major accomplishments were, but his main thing was he negotiated global endorsement deals for Michael Johnson, Peekaboo Street, Dan O'Brien, and Johnny Mosley. Uh, the other person who did get back to me uh, to talk about Jeff Plush was Johnny Mosley, the form, the gold medal winning freestyle skier. Uh, what he had to say about Jeff and the, Jonathan, I can hear him saying it. Uh, uh, Johnny Mosley <laughs> said, uh, Plush is great. Jeff is part of the Olympic family. He knows the landscape well. I always enjoyed working with him, and he will be great for curling. So big endorsement there from another Olympic gold medalist. Yeah, and that's I think that's key, right? That he's Even though he doesn't come from a curling background, he comes from an Olympic background. And uh, while curling is unique in a lot of ways, it's, it's, you know, I think every Olympic sport kind of ties into this um, – you know, global movement, this grass, this kind of grassroots movement, kind of the romantic idea that, that, that anyone in the world can pick up uh, a sport and get all the way to the Olympic Games, maybe. Maybe that's not kind of realistic, but that's the dream, right? And so 
Um, having that Olympic background, I think, is going to be be kind of his greatest asset. All right, so Jonathan, with Jeff Plush as CEO of USA Curling, um, if he's successful in this role, what is that success going to look like if you're a club curler? And then what is that success going to look like if you're one of the high-performance people? Uh, if you're a club... So I think if you're a club curler, success is going to be a couple of things. So one thing I think should be, if I was like to put a challenge down to USA Curling, is to have a dedicated curling facility in every single state in the lower 48 by 2030. So the next decade. And that may sound ambitious, that's but I actually ambitious. think it's quite attainable. <laughs> no, I think that's actually quite attainable. That actually, if you go back a decade, I think we only had like curling clubs in 30 states. And now I believe every state, I'm not sure about Hawaii, but every other state definitely has some kind of active curling club that if you, you live in any state, you can go go play there. Um, so figuring out ways to help support um club so you can actually get high quality places to play i think is really important not just for grassroots curling but in terms of building a farm system for the high performance and then also really embedding curling in to every community in the u.s so that it's no longer this niche quirky sport that pops up every four years but it's actually a sport that people know they watch and they can participate in if they want i think that's that's why Building those facilities matters not just for the grassroots, but also for the high performance. I think the other thing, and I think that's actually gotten significantly better over the last decade, but really building up the support that USA Curling can give back to the clubs in terms of putting on clinics, in terms of helping develop coaches, in terms of helping develop the knowledge about the business of curling, so that the clubs feel like they're, they're getting the value for the membership dues that they contribute back up to USA curling. So that's a, that, that was, that's what I think success is for the club level. Um, for high performance, it simply is go win gold medals. Like there's like, yes, it's a little bit committee makes it clear. They've got a bunch of other fluffy stuff about values and all this, but it's no different than any other professional sport, right? If you're the CEO of a professional basketball team or an NFL team, the goal is to win, right? And so same thing for, uh, you know, CEO of, USA Curling. The goal is to win Olympic medals and uh, world championship medals and consistently make the U.S. a top five power. So um, we do have the kind of 2018 gold medal success, but uh, to be kind of quite honest, that's a bit of an outlier if you kind of look at U.S. international performance over the last 20 years. Um, so the goal is basically to be able to continuously churn out teams that when they get to world championships are always podium threats, not just kind of mid-table threats, if you will. So that's, that's I think, how he'll be judged there. I think key to that is, I, I, I don't know if Derek Brown's been let go or if his contract's ended, but in the press release, I noted that his first task was to hire a new high-performance director. Yeah, so, I think Derek Brown is gone, and I'm not sure why i'm not i'm not i'm not sure if he was released or if that was, or if it was his decision to to part ways but everything that i've read and heard leads me to believe that Derek brown is no longer part of uh usa curling yeah so that's that's going to be interesting i think because um high performance curling director is a fairly new role out there like if you go back a decade there you know outside of canada there really wasn't weren't many countries that had that role 
I would say all the top 10, perhaps even if you go down to top 15 countries in the WCF rankings now have some version of a high performance director, professional, paid full time. I think that outside of Canada, probably the USA is the second most desirable high performance director job out there. Okay. Right. It's it's probably going to pay very well. Um, some of the other ones are, um, you know, in interesting locations, but perhaps not the you know not the most attractive location if you have a family, etc. So I think that if USA Curling plays its cards right, they could probably get just about whoever they want. Um, I think the real challenge is trying to figure out what a high performance director should do. That's that's I think still a bit of a murky murky question out there. Um, you know, when I talk to kind of people in, in the kind of professional side of the coaching game, it's it's a bit blurred between being a national coach and being someone who um, runs the national program, right? Is it is it somebody who's more like the best coach in the country running the whole coaching staff? Or is it perhaps more equivalent to being a general manager who kind of runs the operation sides of things, but then goes out and hires the coaches to run the, run the, the kind of the training and development for the athletes. And it's more focused on building up the, the support system you need in place in order to, to put out um, a program. And then once you have that director in place, there's a whole set of debates still about what, what format and what philosophies work. Right. I think that's still a very much an open question, whether handpicked teams by elite coaches works better than say, self-formed teams through some kind of play down or trial process. Um, how do you fund those teams? What's the best way to do it? Do you, you know, have people paid full time to just be professional curlers? Or do you want to build in place an incentive structure where teams kind of win and, and they kind of earn their their funding with that and that's how you support your team. So if you will, more of a Canadian model is the play down, earn your funding that way model versus the European model where it's uh, you know, athletes put on funding contracts for a period of time, and then the, the teams are formed in some way, shape, or for, formed by the coaching staff. So I think that's that's going to be a very interesting debate and discussion. I think the bias in the U.S., at least amongst the grassroots curlers, is to, towards more of a Canadian open playdown model. But I think a lot of the high performance directors, candidates that are out there kind of lean more towards the European style this way these days. So that might be um, an interesting development depending on on how they decide to go with that. I think my suggestion on the high performance or my plea on the high performance side and something that will help help the grassroots level and maybe alleviate some of the concerns that the grassroots side has uh, for wanting the Canadian style model is Right now, I think the perception is the high-performance program with the U.S. is teams come into the high-performance program in juniors. If they perform well in juniors and they age out, they move into the high-performance men's and women's programs, and then players are moved out of that program to make room for the players that are that are coming up from juniors. I think my plea would be a willingness to have a side door because um, there are very good players um, playing even on tour that picked up this game in their 20s after they were after they would have been eligible for juniors who came you know discovered this game in the Olympics started curling in their 20s and have become very good and could potentially be members of the high performance program and I think the willingness to have a side door the willingness to have a v- develop 
to better develop that talent, the willing willingness to share maybe some of the research you have on sweeping, maybe mm-hmm. share some of the coaching points that we have at the high performance level with those teams that have built themselves up who maybe didn't come through a junior program. Cause one of the biggest advantages of coming through a junior program is you have all the connections that you met in juniors and those are going to be your teammates when you reach the, the senior level. Um, yeah. But be, with the willingness, the willingness to have the willingness to have that side door, I think would be my suggestion for how to improve yeah. the high performance program. I'll make a suggestion if anyone at USA Curling is listening. I, I know they've done a bit more of this lately, but um, one of the things a lot of the, the, the quote-unquote pro teams in Canada do, the Homans, the Team Carruthers, um, Kevin Martin does this, is they, they partly fund their team by running summer camps, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that... I know that USA Curling is kind of trying to offer a bit more of this, but to me, there was always a potential revenue generator. If you have high-performance coaches and players, employ them and run a set of camps in the summer that um, the grassroots players can access for at an affordable rate, but one that still helps USA Curling generate some revenue. And to be honest, in the curling world, it's really easy to go to a camp and spend a week with an Olympian. I've done that kind of a couple of times. Um, and so there's nothing stopping USA Curling from, you know, getting their Jamie Sinclairs and John Schusters and Tabitha Petersons on the ice at these camps and branding it as a USA Curling camp and making sure grassroots curlers can kind of get that knowledge. Uh, I've, I've been, you know, I've worked with some of the best coaches in the world. And I've kind of, you know, some, there's, there's a few little things that are kind of always kept proprietary, but to be honest, even at the highest levels from the best coaches, the technical knowledge is pretty standard across the board, right? It's just learning how to have Mm -hmm. a balanced slide and good technique and sound tactics and good team dynamics. Um, I think sometimes grassroots curlers imagine there's some kind of special sauce when the real special sauce is someone's just gone out and thrown a hundred stones a day for 20 years. And that's why they're a better curler than somebody who hasn't. My last question for you, Jonathan, um, Jeff plush is a very good resume. Um, he had, you know, his last real, he's been a, he's been kind of a consultant, been an entrepreneur for the last three years. I think he kind of ran his own deal. Um, and so now he's, not working for himself anymore for the first time in about uh, three years, but he has a very accomplished resume. How long do we think that he'll be with USA Curling? Uh, do we think this is a springboard to, to something bigger, or do we think that he's in this for the long term? I'm asking you. <laughs> he's like, just looking at his resume, like just in terms of what you posted here. Um, like every single career move makes sense. Like there are moves up. Not you know, not doing something very high and then being kicked back. Uh, it looks like he's normally in a place for somewhere kind of like two to five years, which I think makes kind of a lot of sense for a professional resume. Uh, I think organizations shouldn't be afraid of that. That kind of high caliber, highly ta- talented, and demand people are often you know driven to do well at the organization they're at, but they're always part of what drives them is the opportunity to get something better. So if if in three to five years he's at a larger NGB or you know running an MLS franchise, uh, which would both I think to be quite frank be steps up, 
uh, for him. That shouldn't be seen as a failure. That would mean that he's probably done a very good job at USA Curling and it kind of done the kind of job that would attract attention to get him a promotion to a, a more positive, kind of a more prominent role. Uh, but that then means that USA Curling can then kind of turn around and hopefully recruit another high talented person and say, look, the last person out of this job was able to take it, use this as a springboard to go somewhere, somewhere else. So I don't, I, I think wanting a lifer in some ways has its own risks too. That yeah, actually, if exactly. you really want to grow as an organization, attracting someone who's a good leader who can do a job in that kind of three to five year window and then move on and up to something more prominent probably means the next time around you're hiring, you could attract kind of other competitive candidates for the job. All right. So it's good to have Jeff Plush aboard. Um, welcome to the curling world. Uh, we wish you luck. It'll be interesting to see uh, the the changes that, that he's going to bring to the organization. And if we hear back from anyone else that we reached out to kind of asking about what it was like to work with Jeff or what uh, USA Curling can expect from him or kind of what um, what qualities he brings to the job, we will be sure to let you know here on this show and, uh, and we'll post them to social as well. So thank you everybody for listening. We've We've kind of gone over what we were, were hoping to talk here, but thank you for making it to the end of this show, and we will talk to you again real soon. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app, and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon.